Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Grant. Well, guys, we have before us this morning a really difficult task. I hope you came ready to go. We are going to summarize the entire book of Romans in one sermon. So if you're visiting with us today, welcome to the very end of our almost three-year series in Romans. Uh, This, I believe, is sermon number 86 in the series. And you have come at the very tail end, so welcome. It's good to have you. Uh, I know we ended in chapter 16 about two weeks ago, but the elders felt it was important for us not just to finish and move on, but to take another Sunday and recap and summarize some of the things that we have learned so far. But we will finish the book today, that I promise. Uh, And hopefully what we can do as we go along is tie up any loose ends uh, after all the years that we have spent together in this amazing letter. Now... I have to tell you, over the last 13 years that we've been a church here at Oak Hill, this may be the longest and most difficult sermon I've ever prepared. Uh, This is called Setting Expectations. Uh, This is a tough one. Uh, So I'm going to ask of you guys today focus uh, and patience and hopefully some grace for me because I'm pretty worn out right now. We're going to move quickly across all 16 chapters of the book. We're going to try to hit on the high points. uh, And in particular, we want to look at Paul's uh, flow of thought and his, his logic. Uh, and what's going to come out of it, I believe, is going to be a fire hydrant of theological truth. Are you up for that? Okay, good. Uh, as you know, Romans has been described as, as really the most logical and most systematic letters in all of the New Testament. So it's important for all of us to be able to track with it. And that's the goal of uh, today. Now, back in t- January of 2017, when we started this series, I shared with you a whole slew of of important comments and and thoughts from all these different theologians about how important the book of Romans has been to the church. I'll just remind you of two of them today so that we can sort of get started. First from the 19th century, this is the Swiss theologian Frederick Gaudet who says, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected to a deeper understanding of this book. That's how powerful Romans is. And then from the 20th century, G.I. Packer who says, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. When its message gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. So I'm praying that something great happens, that the Spirit of God moves today and convicts us and challenges us some more and encourages us as well. So this is going to be trying, but hopefully profitable. Um, along the way, as we go through this outline, what I'm going to do is try to help you with some bullet points on the screen so that you can track with where I'm at in the book. And also, we'll look at some really key verses that if you have a pen or a highlighter or something with you, you can just highlight the key verses in the argument that Paul has or, or underline them, and I'll let you know when we get there. So if you haven't yet, take your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1 and dive in. Uh, as we've talked about a number of times in this series... Uh, Scholars look at the book of Romans, and they divide it into five units of thought. Some would say five books within the book of Romans. You see the five things on the screen, complete with wonderful alliteration, right? Uh, Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. So you're going to see the outline today divided by those five things as we walk through Paul's logic and flow of thought. We're going to bypass his greeting right now. And drop down to verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1. Those are key. Underline them, highlight them, whatever you want to do. Because that really summarizes the general overall theme of the book of Romans. And this is the way I would put it. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. If you just want to bottom line it, simplest form, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. So look at verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, right? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. As I mentioned early on in the series, it was these particular two verses that changed the life of Martin Luther. These verses, when he first read these verses, it's when he realized that salvation was by faith alone, and it changed his outlook. And so you can look back at these two verses and say, because they changed Martin Luther so much, they really were the passages that lit the fire and sparked the Reformation 500 years ago. 
So those two verses are important, but I want to dive into these first, uh, the first of the five books that we have, the book of sin. And it begins at verse 118, and it's going to run through verse 320. Uh, I know you guys are going to start scrambling to write. That's good. If anybody comes up short, I know some of you guys take pictures now of the screen. I love that. But if you come up short of taking notes, let me know. I can always send you copies of the slides as well because we're going to go pretty fast today. When we talk about articulating the gospel or we talk about sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, let me just share with you a foundational principle. Don't just jump into the good news. We, we like to do that, right? We, we, we get all nervous. We get all twitchy. There's an unbeliever who's asking questions, and we want to go straight to Jesus, right? Don't do it. There's time for that. Start with the bad news. You first have to describe the need that a person has. So you start with the bad news, and then you come to the good news. Because unless a person can appreciate and grasp the depth of their problem that they have apart from Christ, it's easy for them to slough it off or or to say, not interested, or, or worse, this is my favorite excuse, I'll get to that later. And we all know how damaging and destructive that type of attitude can be. So here in chapter 1, we see Paul modeling this. He's, he's not going to waste a lot of time. He starts with the really, really bad news about the unrighteousness of man and the wrath of God. Key verse, 118, look at it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth. Tamp it down. Try to get rid of it. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So every human being born into this world will one day stand before the Almighty and give an account for his or her life. Every one of us will give an account someday. And consider what man's need is in that moment. As as you or I are standing before the throne of the Almighty, what we need is a righteousness that will hold up before this utterly holy God. Anybody feel like they have the currency for that? To stand before the throne of the Almighty and say, I have a righteousness that I can stand in before this utterly holy God. That is a daunting concept, isn't it? And it's a real problem for mankind. We're going to find out why in just a moment. But here's how Paul describes man's condition beginning in verse 18, all the way through 32. By the way, as he's saying this, he has a particular people group in mind. He's going to talk about the Gentiles. Now, he's going to get to the Jews soon enough, right? But he's starting with the Gentiles. He wants to talk about the people who have a pagan background. These are people that would have worshipped things like the Greek and Roman gods. They would have worshipped nature. They would have worshipped statues and idols. He's interested, first of all, in speaking to them. And so he begins by reminding his audience that there's evidence for a great designer all around us every day. Did you see him this morning? When he came out of your house, when he drove here, when he got out of your car, did you see the great designer all over the place? He says there's a great designer. He says we look around and we can see the attributes and the power of this designer everywhere. And because God has made himself known to us, he says all of us are without excuse. Doesn't matter where we live. We could live in the city. We could live in the country. We could live in the Western Hemisphere or the East. We could live on a giant continent or a tiny little island. We've all seen the glory of God. We've seen His power. We've seen His divine attributes. And so all human beings are accountable to God for what's been made known to us. But here's the tragic reality. And here's what Paul explains in chapter 1. In spite of what man sees, and in spite of what he can know by what he sees, he will not honor God. He will not give thanks to God. He can't do it. Instead, what he'll do is he'll choose to run around and speculate about all kinds of theories about the nature of things and about life and death. But all of those theories tend to put man at the center of everything. He puts himself there in the seat that God sits in. And over time, as man continues to reject the creator in favor of himself, what happens is darkness sets in. He gets darker and darker. Man's heart gets turned in on self, and he becomes narcissistic. Everything in life becomes about my needs and my desires and my satisfaction. He'll do almost anything to make life work for him. In effect, what he does is he becomes his own little God, and he begins to try to control everything and control everyone around him, whatever it takes to fill the void in his heart. What he's looking for is to feel happy 
and to be satisfied as we define that. But of course, it never works, does it? Not for long. And so man fools himself into thinking that he's somehow wise in this. This is, this is maybe the most deceptive part. He actually thinks as he's speculating that he's become wise. He's so smart. He's so clever. He's so creative. But the truth is, by saying in his heart there is no God, his thinking has become all off kilter. His mind is being corrupted. It's being debased. And rather than becoming wise, Paul says, he becomes what? A fool. We see this all around us. We have people that think they're so wise, but by saying there is no God in their heart, they're becoming fools. Now, it's not as if man stops worshiping altogether because natural man worships all the time, right? We, we're, we're wired to worship. It's just that the object of his worship shifts from the creator to created things. He ends up worshiping all kinds of material things that he believes is finally going to help him find that everlasting pleasure, that happiness that he's been searching for. But again, it ends up being a lie. And so ultimately, God gives him over. God says, okay, if that's what you want, I will give you over to these desires that you have as warped as they are. If that's what you want, here you go. And God will abandon natural man to his own desires and lusts. And where does that end up? Paul says, to all forms of impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies, he writes. And the ultimate example he gives to explain this is homosexuality. Now, not that that's the only type of sexual sin or, or worse than any other sexual sin. It's just that Paul sees this as a graphic representation of, of how we can twist something that is so beautifully and exquisitely designed by God. And we can twist it all up and begin to say, no, 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 no. what is down is really up. And what is unnatural is actually natural. It's a warped mind. It's improper thinking. This is what unrighteous man does. And we're seeing this grow in increasing measure, aren't we, in our culture today. And so by rejecting the truth about the creator and the design, man finds himself in deep trouble. Listen, he needs righteousness, but he will not seek after it, and therefore he will never find it. But he does have a date at the judgment seat of God, nonetheless. Friends, that's the bad news. And we have to be able to explain that to people before we get to Jesus. Because they've got to grasp the problem that they're facing. Because we all will die someday, true? Now, beginning in chapter 2, Paul says, well, look, I'm not going to just leave this with the Gentiles and the pagans. I'm going to address my Jewish brothers and sisters as well. Now, from his personal experience, he's a Jew, right? He knows two things about the Jews. Number one, as the chosen people, they tended to be arrogant, about their spiritual status before God. And secondly, they tended to look down upon the pagan Gentiles as sort of dirty, filthy dogs and to judge them harshly. And so after describing the desperate condition of all mankind, lest his Jewish believers think that they're somehow exempt from that, Paul's going to now address them. And he says, look, brothers, as you judge others, be careful that you don't condemn yourself because you do the same things that those pagans do. Don't lie to me. I know you do, and you know you do. You're no different. So how do you think you're going to escape God's wrath? If you're doing the very same things you judge them for, how do you expect to escape God's wrath when you get to the judgment seat? There's no partiality with God, folks. If you as a Jew know the law and you sin against it, then you will be judged by that very law. So if you feel entitled because you're the chosen people, that you think you're qualified to teach others and you're a, you're a guide to the blind, if you've judged yourself that way, start here. Judge yourself and teach yourself first before you point the finger at others. You boast in your circumcision, the physical sign of the Abrahamic covenant, but that's an outward symbol. It has value only if you live up to the standards of the law. The fact is, being one of God's chosen people has nothing to do with what's on the outside. A true Jew is a Jew on the inside. It's a matter of the heart. And so Paul wants to get this through to both Gentiles and to Jews. So here's the really, really bad news. Nobody is righteous. I mean, if you want to just group the population of the world in these two categories, Jew and Gentile, none are righteous. None. Not one. Not one person has the righteousness necessary to stand before the judgment seat of God. So look at chapter 3, key verses here, verses 10 and 11. 
Chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is how many righteous? None. Not even one. There is none who understands. Listen, there is none who seeks for God. Important principle. No person seeks after God on his or her own. We've all turned away from him, Paul says. Why? Because we prefer ourselves. We prefer to worship self, not God. So don't be fooled. Listen, we hear this all the time in our culture. Oh, he's a good man. She's a good woman. No such thing. None are righteous. Know that theologically. Because we know ourselves, don't we? In all of our thoughts, we, we know ourselves. We're not good. In, in our motivations, in our speech, in our deeds, we are self-worshipping people to our very core. And apart from the righteousness that we need, we're all going to share the same eternal fate, and that is condemnation. So this is rough stuff, isn't it? All of humanity is accountable to God. The Jews are accountable, Gentiles are accountable, and none are righteous. Should we get to the good stuff now? Yeah. Aren't you glad that God didn't say, okay, done with the letter? Yeah, he doesn't leave us in the book of sin. What next comes next is the book of salvation. And it runs from chapter 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 5. And so here Paul lays out, the, lays out the remedy. Praise the Lord, right? We have, there's a remedy to the problem that man has. It's the fix for the problem. Here's how he provides us with the righteousness that we need to stand before him someday. See, that's the truth, right? The only way we're going to get the righteousness to stand before him is if he gives it to us. So we ought to figure out how that works. True? Key verses. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. I'm going to read it in the ESV because it's a little bit clearer. 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Okay? It's been made clear to us. How? Apart from the law, Paul says. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Folks, this is the doctrine of justification. Right here. This is how you and I can be declared righteous in God's sight even though we keep sinning. Anybody think that's good news? So first, notice once again, all of humanity is in this boat, right? All of sin, Paul says, all have fallen short of God's standard in order to be saved. Notice this. There's no room given here for either Jew or Gentile who live a, quote, pretty good life or, quote, uh, better than most. No room given for that. All have sinned, he says, all fall short. That's important. Second, notice that this righteousness of God that we need, it comes apart from the law. What does that mean? It means it can't be earned. It can't be earned by obedience or by good works or or even by religious observance because none of those things can ever bridge the gap between this utterly righteous God and us utterly sinful people. Uh, There's just not enough good things you can do to bridge that gap. Rather, the righteousness of God comes to us as what? A gift. Did you see it? Verse 24, a gift justified by his grace as a gift. You can't earn a gift. A gift has to be given to you by another. The righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How many of you guys were here on Reformation Sunday? Good. We talked about a couple really important principles of the Reformation. Two solas, sola gratia, sola fide, by grace alone, through faith alone. They're both right here in this passage. By grace alone, through faith alone. So listen, I know we have a lot of recovering Catholics uh, in this church, a lot of folks that have a Catholic background, if you grew up being taught that, that, that you needed faith, but it would only get you so far to God, and then you had to make up the rest by your good deeds, turn away from that mess. I mean, if you were taught that you got to go to a certain number of religious services, or you got to say a certain number of prayers, or, you know, it's the sacraments, or you got to go knock on doors with the white shirt and the tie and all that stuff, right? Or, or, you know, any of that stuff, turn away from that mess completely and trust what God says right here in his word in Romans 3. It is by faith 
alone, period. Amen? So quick summary so far, bad news, you need righteousness, but none of you are righteous. Good news, the righteousness of God has now been made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's available to you if you'll trust in him. Bad news, good news. Make sense? Now, as I shared throughout our study in Romans, Paul is a master at anticipating objections. Remember how we talked about this? He, he knows his audience well. And at this point, there's no doubt in my mind that he's concerned as he writes this that already the Jewish believers in the church at Rome are starting to look at him sideways. They're starting to wonder, what about this guy? Right? Because remember, these are folks, the Jewish believers in Rome, they grew up with the law of Moses. They love the traditions of Judaism. And so when Paul talks about being saved completely apart from the law, they would have said, hmm, not sure I like that so much. So Paul is going to anticipate that objection. And beginning in chapter 4, he begins to prove his case using the ultimate example, Abraham. Hey, you going to argue with Abraham? I don't think so. Right? So don't make the mistake, he says, of thinking that Abraham was somehow justified by his life. That Abraham was saved because he was such a righteous man, because he wasn't. If you go back to the book of beginnings, back to Genesis 15, which every Jewish believer loves, right? you'll see that way back then, God declared Abraham to be justified, not by his works, not by his godliness, but what? By his faith in God's promises. In Genesis, right? How long, how long was Genesis written before Romans? About 1,500 years. So we're going way back, right? So Abraham wasn't inherently righteous. Do we agree with that? God simply chose Abraham. He wasn't inherently righteous. He didn't do anything worthy of being justified. He was a sinner like all of us. But back in Genesis 15, we're told, listen, the word of God came to Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Friends, that is justification by faith alone in the Old Testament. That's the way people have been saved since the dawn of time, by faith. Abraham simply believed, and the word is credited. He means he didn't earn it. It was just like God said, whoop, I'm putting it over here. You're righteous in my eyes. That's pretty cool. Now, for the Jews in the audience who would have been surprised or shocked or upset by this, Paul asks them a question. Well, when did Genesis 15 happen? Did it happen before circumcision or after? Before. Uh Uh-oh. Paul, are you telling me that, wait, wait, come on now. Abraham was justified by God before he was circumcised? How can that be? That means being a Jew is not a prerequisite for salvation. That means that justification is available outside of ethnic and spiritual Israel, even those dirty dog Gentiles. Yeah, Paul writes, Abraham's the father of all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, anyone who comes to faith through Jesus Christ. Father, that's why we call him Father Abraham, right? Jew and Gentile alike. So here's something for us to rejoice in. You and I were once born, and we were sinful and deceived and blind, and we were enemies of God. Can you, can you, I know it's hard on this side of things to fathom that you were once an enemy of God, rebellious to the core. You wanted nothing to do with him. We thumbed our nose at him. There was no fear of God before our eyes. We were destined for judgment and wrath. But now, two favorite words in the Bible. But now, things have changed. Having received his gift of grace, having put our trust in him, key verse, go to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by what? By faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that, are you kidding me? That, that is amazing stuff. That we have, we have peace with the Creator. It's, it's, if, if you really stop and meditate on that for a while, knowing who you were and who you are now in Christ and how you got there, that is a mind-blowing concept. We have peace with God. You've been reconciled to your Creator. Brought back into relationship. Peace has been established. Now we live with a a confident hope because we know where we're going. 
We know that nothing can separate us from his love, so we know what our destiny is, and that means we can rejoice. And hear this, in every circumstance we can rejoice. Even when things are going badly, right? When we're challenged and we're going through trials or persecution, even tragedy. And Paul says, in fact, if you have a confident hope in your eternal destiny, those challenges and trials that you're going through make you stronger. You're like an athlete training. You grow stronger through it. It builds up endurance, he says, or perseverance. And that perseverance is a test, and it produces, what, character. And that character leads to even greater hope because we know where we're headed. And we know we're going to live with him forever. So the question that Paul would ask here in this chapter is, so what on this earth could possibly get you down when you know who you are and where you're going? It's an important principle. Now, at this point in the letter, Paul draws a great contrast, and it's a contrast between two things, the reign of sin and the reign of grace. The reign of sin came from who? From the first Adam who ushered in sin in the garden, right? You guys have heard me say it before. I just have this dream that every time, every person that goes into the pearly gates, there's no pearly gates, but every time we come to the pearly gates, Adam is standing there, and we all get to, like, pop him. We just get to slap him and say, mm. but Adam, the first Adam, ushered in the reign of sin among mankind. What happened after that? Sin brought about corruption in us, brought about guilt in us. It's in our DNA now. Listen, we can't not sin because of Adam, because sin reigned in all of humanity, and death Paul says, spread to all humanity. But he says, listen to the good news. Just as one sin brought about condemnation for all mankind, in the same way, one sacrificial act of righteousness brought us justification. A second Adam. One who wouldn't fail. One who would go to the cross, die and be raised again. We have a second Adam. The curse has been reversed. This is the contrast he's drawing here. He's talking about substitutionary atonement. He says, look, at the very moment when you were utterly helpless and without hope in the world, when you were dead in your sin, corrupt and guilty, an enemy of God, and standing under his wrath, that is the precise moment that Christ died for you. That is crazy. Because you wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't do that for somebody who hated me. Nobody does that, but God did it. Key verse, chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, this is a fact. Christ died for awful, rebellious, ungodly people like you and me. And we have to own that. See, if we don't own that, if we don't admit that, we can't be saved. We wouldn't have a repentant heart. Own it. We were awful, ungodly, rebellious people. And Christ died for us anyway. He became your substitute. He took your place on that cross. He took the pain that you deserved. He took upon himself the eternal penalty that you owed for sin, the penalty that you would owe if you stood before an utterly holy God. And God said, you owe a debt. He paid it for you. This truth always amazes me. The, the, the double imputation. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. That's the best deal you'll ever make. So we wrap up the book of salvation and we say, you know what? Paul could finish right here and we'd have the whole gospel. I mean, this is amazing, right? We got the good news, we got the bad news, but there's more. Okay, good. Praise God he hasn't just left us sitting there because look, if, if that's all it was is, okay, we recognize the bad news, we repent, okay, we, we receive the gift of grace, we're saved, and not, now we just wait till we die? No, there's more... Hey, there's life in Christ, right? This is exciting stuff. So there's much more that he longs to do in our hearts and our lives while we're still here on the earth. That's where we come to the book of sanctification. And that runs through three chapters, six, seven, and eight. Having talked about man's problem, having talked about the solution, this is where Paul begins to talk about what new life in Christ looks like. And it's exciting. We open up chapter six and Paul asks this question. 
Seems funny to us, but it makes sense in his logical argument. He says, okay, Jesus has paid the ransom for our sin, so should we, go, should we keep on sinning? And that way we multiply grace? Hey, look, we love grace, so why don't we sin a whole bunch more, and then we'll get more grace? And, and of course, Paul emphatically says what? May it never be. Absolutely not. Because God wants so much more for you as his child than to go on sinning as if nothing has changed. Because everything has changed. Now that you've bowed your knee to Christ, God desires that you and I be sanctified. What does that mean exactly? It means to become holy, to grow in holiness, that more and more over time, you're progressively becoming more conformed to the image and character of Christ himself. And guess what? When we pass from this life, that process will be done. But on earth, he wants to move us towards that goal. That's what we call sanctification. So here's the amazing theological implication of, of trusting in Christ. We, we say it all the time, but think about it for a second. We are found in him. We are found in Christ. We are members of his body. We speak of what we call union with Christ. We are united to him. So what's true of him is true of you in this sense. When he was crucified, that old, ungodly, awful self was crucified too. It's good news. When he died and was buried, that old self, that ungodly, rebellious self, died and was buried with him. And when he was raised to life, we were raised in the sense that we're raised to a whole new way of living. And that's what so many Christians are missing they're just missing the fact that you've been raised to newness of life. So let's walk that way. You were raised to walk in a whole new way. So think about this. If you've died to that old self, how can you possibly go on living like you're still that old, ugly person? Why would you do that? Why? If you were once a slave, but someone came and said, you know what, you're free now, why would you stay there and keep living like a slave? That's ridiculous. So Paul writes, key verse, chapter 6, verse 11. Underline it, highlight it, 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because here's the thing. We're going to talk about slavery a little bit here. Nobody really has a free will. Did you know that? We talk, you hear people talk about free Nobody has a free will because we are all slaves to something or someone. It's true. If sin is your master, you're going to obey its lusts and you'll present the parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, Paul says, but the result of that is not good, spiritual and physical death. The other choice is to make Jesus your master, to allow him to break the chains that once bound you to sin, to let him set you free, and with that freedom, then turn around and voluntarily say, now I make myself a slave, a different type of slave, a slave to my new master who is good and godly, and now I'm going to be a slave to righteousness. Slave to righteousness. And the result of that is very different. It's peace and it's joy and it's ultimately everlasting life. So choose this day, right? Who will be your master? Will it be sin or will it be Christ? Given those two choices, why would you let sin reign in your body, Paul asks. Make sense? Right, pretty logical argument, actually, right, that Paul's making here. Are we paying attention? Are we hearing it? Now, chapter 7 is quite controversial. I'm not going to rehash my argument in chapter 7. Go listen online. But this is the moment where Paul again turns to his Jewish brethren to discuss the role of the law in their lives. Because this was so big for the, for the early church that was made up of so many Jewish believers who still were hung up on, well, hold on, the dietary laws and the, the holidays and the festivals, what am I supposed to do with all this? And so Paul says, listen, the law of Moses once had jurisdiction over you, but you've died to it. You have a new master. You've died to it. Don't be a slave to it. You've died to that law. And he says, friends, listen, let the law go. That law couldn't save you. It never, the law could never save you. So why are you gripping onto it? The only thing the law was really good for was arousing sinful passions within you. And that led to spiritual death. Now, Paul's not saying that the law itself was sinful, right? Paul says, may it never be. If the law was given by God, then by definition, it's holy and righteous and good. 
So then it begs the question, well, then what was the purpose of God giving the law to the Jews? And the answer is this, so that they would know what sin is. That's why. The function of the law was to show Israel just how sinful they were and how they couldn't possibly keep the law. What it was designed to do was to humbly direct them towards a savior. And they had all these promises in their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, right, about the Messiah. This is the guy, he's, gonna, he's the redeemer. You can't fulfill the law, stop it. You need a redeemer. So it's all about driving the Jews to the redeemer. So ultimately, it's Paul's testimony before he came to know Christ. And, and this is, again, where the controversial take that I have on, on, on Romans 7. I believe it's Paul's testimony before he came to know Christ. As a Jew, Paul was more zealous than anybody you could pick out. He wanted so badly to, to fulfill the law. He wanted so badly to please God through it. But what did he find? That he couldn't stop sinning. In fact, the more he concentrated on the law, the more he found himself thinking about sin. Now, it wasn't as if he didn't love God's law. He says he did. He wanted it so badly. But he discovered that the very thing he wanted to do, he ended up not doing. He couldn't do it. And the very evil that he wanted to avoid, he found himself doing that very evil. And so life under the law for Paul or for any Jew was a, a life of failure and frustration. So in chapter 7, he announces this truth, truism. He says, this was actually sin working in me. What sin did was it fanned the flame of the desires of my flesh, and sin then took, took hold of the commands of the law and made him a slave to unrighteousness. And he cries out in pain at the end of chapter 7. Remember what he says? Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Right? It's frustration about the law. The law's inability to save him or to sanctify him. He's frustrated. Wretched man, who's going to save me? Here's the beautiful thing. Right after that verse, we get to chapter 8, verse 1. Turn there. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, that's why, that's why I, I, I really feel strongly about interpreting chapter 7 in the sense that he's struggling under the law because he screams out, wretched man that I am. And now he's saying, but now, now that I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation. He's drawing a contrast here. The law could never do what God ultimately did for you and me. The law could not do it. God sent his one and only son into the world to take on human flesh, to live the sinless life we could never live, and then to give himself as an offering for sin. And now listen to this. If, if you're getting worn out, I get it, but pay attention here. By doing that, you and I are reckoned to have fulfilled the law perfectly. When we trust in Christ, God reckons us as having fulfilled the law perfectly. That's how we can stand before him someday. That's amazing stuff. I, I don't even hear anybody saying anything. That's amazing stuff, right? If you're hidden in Christ, God looks upon you as if you have fulfilled his law perfectly and therefore there's no wrath or condemnation hanging over you because you're covered by his righteousness. That's amazing. And so because of that, we now live differently. And this is the whole point. We live life in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We have a helper. We have an advocate who is given to us for the purpose of convicting us of sin, of guiding us, of gifting us, of sanctifying us, of transforming us. Our minds are no longer set on the things of the flesh. That's not our life anymore. Our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. And Paul says, if that's you, if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, then you are a true child of God. You've received a spirit of adoption. You belong to the very family of God. Amazing stuff. What that does is it makes you an heir to everything God has. I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've inherited anything from grandparents or parents. It's a pretty cool thing when that just like lands on your doorstep, right? Guys, as a child of God... You've inherited all the resources of Almighty God. You are a joint heir with Christ, the very Son of God, to all the vast resources that He has. 
It's amazing. Amazing stuff. And think about all the challenges and the sufferings that you're going through right now, Paul says. They're nothing compared to the glory that you're going to see someday. And that's really a great way to look at life. Look, we all go through hard things, right? And so we lock arms as a church family. We, we, we walk through life together. We support one another. But all of these things that we're frustrated with right now, all of the challenges and the trials, nothing compared to what you're going to have and see when you're with Jesus for all eternity. Paul wants to make that really, really clear. But it's true right now we groan, he says. Amen, anybody? We groan in these bodies. In fact, the whole creation groans. Universe groans. You, me, we all groan in these bodies because we're awaiting our ultimate redemption. We've tasted a little bit, but we don't have it completely. Some of us are closer than others. I mean, look, I'm I'm not hoping to die soon, but man, it's nice to be closer to redemption. There's coming a day where I will no longer feel temptation to sin. I will never be ravaged by sin amazing. Brothers and sisters, our victory is assured. Paul wants to make this really clear in this chapter, chapter 8. Our victory is assured. There is no doubt about it. So he says, as you wait for your ultimate redemption, be patient. The Spirit is there to come to your aid. He's going to help you through whatever's going on. In fact, he says, you don't even know how to pray, but the Spirit is there to help you pray. He intercedes for you at the very throne of grace and interprets your prayers in such a way that they come into line with God the Father. We have a helper. And then there's this promise. Go to chapter 8, verse 28. I mean, so Paul's, do you see what he's doing here? He's, he's giving you all these encouragements about what life in the Spirit looks like right now. And it's so exciting and it's so good. 828, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. See, see, God is sovereign and control of every detail of our lives. And because he's graciously working to conform you to the image of a son, he's able to take everything that's happening right now in all of our lives, good, bad, otherwise, joyful, not so joyful, and work them together in such a way that you're ultimately blessed as he sees fit. And he's good, so we can trust him. What a comfort this is to know that no experience of your life is wasted. That because of his great love for you, he's working in all of it. And by the way, if you're one of his children, his love for you in that sense has been present from the very beginning. I mean, we're going to blow your mind even more. Before God even laid the foundations of the world, he loved you that much. Long ago, Before he even created anything, God chose to love you. Stop and think about that. Paul says he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. That means you were marked out as an object of his grace, even as Jesus hung on the cross. You'd been marked out for that. It means you were chosen to be justified and saved and within time and space. You know, God, God ordains this before the, the foundations of the world. Within time and space, he carries out the practical living out of that. He, he calls you. He draws you to himself. He justifies you. And if he calls you, he'll justify you. If he justifies you, someday he's going to glorify you. And Paul goes through this great list that screams God is sovereign. It's good news. It's good news. And then he goes on, look, if God has declared these things to be true, what can possibly stop it? If God is for you, who can be against you, he says. He says, oh, you're, not, you're not getting it. You're not understanding how sovereign God is. You're not understanding how, for how long he's loved you and how much he's loved you. If he's for you, nothing can stop this. And nothing can separate you from his love. Can anything really get in the way of God? Nothing can separate you from such a sovereign, loving God. Nothing, nobody, no power in the world. Certainly not death can't do it. In fact, death to us is what? Just a promotion to a better stage of life. So not even death, our great enemy, is a threat to God and God's children. Are you seeing what he's trying to tell us? Be encouraged. This is life in the Spirit. Look at 837, key verse. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer 
through him who loved us. Guys, that was as true for a martyr who is put to death by the Roman Empire or burned at the stake in the medieval period as it is for you. We overwhelmingly conquer no matter what the world throws at us because we know where we're going. We know who loves us. It's awesome. Okay, deep breath. How are we doing? Now comes chapter 9. And this is where Christians get all wonky. Not chapter 9. What does it mean? Jeff, explain this. Why is it here? <laughs> this is the book of sovereignty. The book of sovereignty. Three more chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And in this section, what Paul's going to do is talk about God's eternal plan for, for Israel in particular, but also for us Gentiles. Once again, Paul's anxious to address the concerns of his Jewish brothers. And, and as he writes this, you sort of get a little taste of how painful it is for Paul that he is out there busting his tail to spread the gospel. And what do the Jews say every place he goes? Out. We won't hear it. And it breaks his heart. He's devastated by this. It would almost be enough to make one doubt God's love. And so Paul goes out of his way to make something very, very clear at the beginning of chapter 9. Listen to this. This is important. Even though Israel was actively rejecting her own Messiah at this time, this does not mean that God's word has failed. This does not mean that somehow God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been mistaken or miscommunicated. God's word has not failed. But if you were a Jew living in the first century, you might look at conditions on the ground and say, well, then, Paul, explain what's going on. God's promised us salvation, but we're all turning away from Jesus. How do you explain this, Paul? Paul's answer is really clear. He says, not all who are descended from Israel are truly Israel. Hmm. This has been Paul's point going back to chapter 2. It's not about the flesh. It's not about flesh and bone or blood. It's not about what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside. So having Jewish DNA is not enough. True Israel, the inheritor of God's promises, are those chosen by God, not simply marked out by ancestry. And if you need an example of this, he says, hey, look at Jacob and Esau. Couldn't find a better example for this than Jacob and Esau. Why? Because we're talking about twins. What does that mean? They've got the same father who is Abraham himself, the ultimate example. Twins with the same father, same genes, same Abrahamic blood running through their veins, one loved by God, one rejected by God. Right? One is true Israel, one is not. Only Jacob is the child of promise. That's the point Paul's making here. And if you object by saying, well, I know why. I know what's going on here. Jacob was a really godly man, and Esau was not. <laughs> Esau was adult. I mean, that's the best word I have for Esau. But Jacob was a conniving scoundrel. But he's the child of promise. Guys, God is a God who chooses. We may not like that, but it's from Genesis to Revelation. It's the truth about God. He's a God who chooses. Neither one of these guys deserved to inherit God's promises, and yet God chose one to receive it and one not to receive it. And then Paul, just, to, just to, in case you want to object some more, says, well, here's another fact. He had made that decision before they were even born. Before they had a chance to do good or bad, God said, yet yeah, Jacob's the one, Esau's not. Hmm. Now, based on that, here's the big question that vexes so many Christians. Does that mean God is unjust? Is he unfair, we ask? What does Paul say? May it never be, right? Absolutely not. Does God not have the right to choose? Is he not sovereign? Is he not the potter and we're the clay? Who, who is qualified to stand before God and say, I charge you with being unjust? Who's qualified for that job? To say, no, God, you're unfair. You're doing it wrong. Recall how God said to Moses, key verse, look at 
9.15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Guys, we call this unconditional election. God's choosing is not conditioned upon man. He chooses alone. doesn't depend on how a man lives. Otherwise, Jacob wouldn't have been chosen. doesn't matter how, if a person does this or doesn't do that, because we've already established that nobody's righteous, so nobody deserves to be chosen, right? It depends solely upon God. And if nobody deserves to be chosen, yet God chooses some, how could he be unfair? Let me just say that again. If nobody deserves to be chosen, yet God still chooses some, how can he be unfair or unjust? It's an act of grace. Wouldn't the opposite be true? That God is gracious and not letting all of us perish under the weight of our sin? Wouldn't that be true? So God will have mercy on some, those whom he chooses, and the rest he will harden in their sins, it says. That's hard. That's difficult. But it's not as if a person isn't personally responsible, they choose to sin. God will harden them in that sin, in those decisions. And then his judgment of them will be deserved and righteous because they've sinned. And if you wish to object to this truth that God shouldn't harden anybody or it's unjust that he doesn't save everybody, including, I guess, Adolf Hitler, right? Take your argument to its logical extreme. Do he has to save everybody? Or he's not allowed to harden anyone at all? Paul's ultimate answer is this. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Now, we don't like that answer, do we? But that's the answer we're given. Who are you to talk back to God? Doesn't the potter have the right to mold the clay as he sees fit? And then Paul says, look, this is the truth. God has taken this giant lump of clay, call it mankind, and he's taken some of the clay and he's fashioned it into, a pot, into pottery that's beautiful. It's, it's for honorable use. And the rest of the clay is not. It's for dishonor and judgment. It's not easy. It's not easy stuff. In fact, this is one of the hardest truths that you can possibly study and and, and trust in in all of Scripture. But it's plain black and white here in chapter 9. What Paul says next must have been really painful for him. He describes in detail the failure of Israel. He says, look, here's the problem with the Jews. They're searching after righteousness as if they can earn it, as if it's in their power to save themselves. They're trusting in their works. He says, look, are the Jews zealous for God's law? Absolutely. Is their zeal connected to right knowledge? No. They're zealous, but they don't have right information. They're still trying to pursue salvation by works. And he says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's that? It's Jesus, right? Israel has stumbled over what the prophets called the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. Listen, they missed their own Messiah. Not only that, they put him to death. And still they believe they can achieve righteousness by works. Then another hard truth. In fact, it was God himself who put the stumbling stone in their path. You're like, what? It was God who laid the stone in Zion that they would stumble over. Why? This is part of God's sovereign plan that the Jews would stumble in this age. Now again, does that mean we want to try to charge God with injustice? Did God, not, did God hide the truth about the Messiah from the Jews? Is it not all over their scriptures, a description of this Redeemer who will come? Moses, Isaiah, the Psalms, Micah, Daniel, Zechariah, they all pointed to him, and yet they put him to death. And so at the end of chapter 10, Paul says, All day long, God has stretched out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. But know this about Israel's future. This is so amazing. Once again, God's word has not failed. His promises have not been retracted. God will be faithful to what he has declared about the Jews. He's always faithful. And that means in spite of this current rebellion that Israel is in, they have not been cast away forever. Key verse, 11.1. Chapter 11, verse 1. It cannot be more clear than this. Because I know that there's some in the, within Christendom that want to argue against this. They say, no, the Jews have been done away with completely. Look at 11.1. It could not be more clear. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Yes, they've stumbled. They've missed Jesus. But have they fallen beyond recovery? No. 
So here's what's going on. We live right now between the cross and the second coming in what we call the age of the Gentiles. This is a time when Israel's been put on the shelf, so to speak, as the Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. We see that in the New Testament writings. We see it in the, new, in the early church. We see it happening right up to this day. This is the period of the Gentiles. Israel has been, is, is stubborn and has been put on the shelf for now. And, and the ironic thing of all of it is Israel's failure and their unbelief is what opened the door for Gentiles to be saved. That's what Paul says in chapter 11. Her unbelief opened the door so that God could do a great work through apostles like Paul to see all these Gentiles come to saving faith. But again, Paul warns us. He says, don't overinterpret this as a permanent rejection of Israel. Israel still has a future. And he calls it, look, he says, look, there's a partial hardening that's happened. Until when? Until the full number of Gentiles chosen before the foundation of the world comes into the kingdom. There is a finite number. It could be tonight. I don't know when it is, but Israel will remain on the shelf until the full number of Gentiles comes in, and then suddenly, like a thief in the night, Jesus will come back to Zion. That's the next thing. Jesus will come back to Zion. And as Zechariah declares, when he comes back, every eye will behold him, right? Speaking of those in Israel, because he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Every eye will see him, and they will look upon the one whom they have pierced, and they will do what? They will mourn, and they will repent. And Paul says in Romans 11 that in that day, all Israel will be saved. There'll be this incredible outpouring of salvation in the land. Man, what a day that's going to be. So Paul, you got to step back. 9 through 11 is so big, you guys, and it's so filled with things that blow our minds. Look what he says at the very end, 1133. How does Paul process this? He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Amen? This is hard stuff, but look how Paul responds to it. He's like, mind blown. How unsearchable is God? How amazing is the Lord? That's why we sing praises to him. Okay, we're really close to wrapping up. More water. Grant, how are we doing on those songs? <laughs> okay. Here's what I love about Paul's flow. He's given us the bad news about sin. He's told us about the, the remedy, the good news of salvation. He's talked about the promise of sanctification in the Spirit. Now he's given us these really hard truths about election and where we fit into God's sovereign plan. But how is he going to end it? With super practical tips. It's like a, a good sermon. They did all this theology and then boom, practical application. I love it. This is the book of service. From 12.1 to the middle of chapter 15. Guys, this is how Paul now describes a transformed people, how they live life together in the local church. So he goes from really high, high and lofty stuff, boom, down to street level and says, okay, because of all these things, guys, you Christians, this is how you should live. This is how you should live. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I know we spent a lot of, I think we did two weeks on those two verses. I won't break them down, but they're so important. Underline them, highlight them. They're so important. This is, this is total transformation. Paul says, therefore, because of everything I've already shared, he says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Every part of you, lay it before God each day. Lord, I am a living sacrifice to glorify you. And he goes on. This is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Guys, you're in a battle right now with a culture and fake news and all the stuff that's going on, politics and all that, right? The world wants to squeeze you into its mold. No, 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 look over here. Come over here, fit here. And we say, no. Oh, no, my thinking is renewed. I don't think like the rest of the people. I don't think like that. I'm not going to get squeezed into that. I'm different because I'm found in Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul lays that out. He says, this is what total transformation of the believer looks like. Now he's going to rattle off a whole bunch of instructions for how we ought to live. Here's the list. First of all, whoops, there it is. He says, the first virtue you have to put on 
in the local church. Are you ready? You're like, what do I do to be a really good church member? Are you ready? Here it is. Humility. Humility. He says, do not think more highly of yourself than you should. Take the gifts that the Spirit of God gives you and put them to use in the body. Don't hold back. Serve other people, not yourself. Don't use your spiritual gifts to show off. Don't use them to get applause from other people. Use your gifts to build other people up, to encourage others, to help them be transformed and grow in the Lord. He says, love others sincerely, not hypocritically. Don't say one thing and do another. Don't claim to be this and be that, but love with sincerity. Devote yourself to the good of everybody else. Give them the preference. Consider them more important than your needs. Be devoted to praying for them, he says. Contribute to their financial needs. Practice hospitality. And he says, in doing this, you're not just serving them, you're serving the Lord. This is how the church works. And then he says something that's really hard for all of us. He says, look, if somebody treats you poorly, if they hurt you, if they wound you, they say something careless, they judge you unfairly, he says, look, I know you're going to want to curse them. Don't. Bless them instead. Ah, it's so hard. No, bless them instead. He says, look, don't repay evil for evil. Let God judge. Leave room for his vengeance. You think you can trust God with those things? Yeah, God's got that. Bless instead and don't curse. Bottom line is, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody and overcome evil with good. That's what's fitting for a Christ follower. And speaking of representing Jesus well, oh boy. What about the government? Woo, how much time you got? How do we deal with the government? How should a Christ follower view the governing authorities? And it's actually really simple, isn't it? Submit to them. But Jeff, they're so wicked. I know. Listen, every government, every government is wicked. It's filled with unbelievers. What did you expect? Submit to them. Well, why? That doesn't make sense. Because if they're in power, God put them there. And if you're resisting what God has established, you're resisting God himself. That's a bad place to be. I know that's a really hard one. So guess what? Pay your taxes. Man. He had to put that in there, didn't he? Pay your taxes. Give honor to those who are in authority. If it's Barack Obama, if it's Donald Trump, whatever. Give honor to those who deserve honor. That's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> but by doing that, we become a good ambassador for Christ, and we can live quiet and peaceful lives under a secular government. That's a good thing for all of us. One last important principle. Unity, unity, unity. It's what Jesus prayed for in the garden before he went to the cross, right? That we would be so tightly one that people would see us and go, man, look at how they love each other. They must know Jesus. But we have failed miserably at this, haven't we? We're often divided. And what do we divide over? The most ridiculous things. We're so petty. We divide over all these things, right? And, and things that are non-essential to the gospel. Well, what can we eat? What shouldn't we drink? What holiday should we observe? And then you go down to dancing and playing cards and tattoos and R-rated movies. All these different things, and we just love to divide over them. All these issues, we call them what? Disputable matters. They're not scriptural instructions. They are matters of opinion and conscience. And so each person should be convinced in their own mind on these things and to hold firmly to those things. But Paul says, look, as you're, as you're developing your conscience on those things, stop judging one another, right? The stronger brother who feels more freedom to do those things, to engage in those things, don't, don't force your freedom on your weaker brother and cause him to stumble into sin. And you weaker brothers, don't look at your stronger brother who's really enjoying his freedom and say, oh, you loser. <laughs> Stop it. Stop judging one another in the body. Remember, he says, the kingdom of God is not defined by silly things like eating and drinking and tattoos. He said it's about things like righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit. So, I've worn you out. Um, here's my summary of the summary. And then we're going to pray. 
There's the five things we just talked about. Look, mankind's got a problem. It's got a righteousness problem, right? God's got a remedy. It's justification by faith alone. And now we have freedom from the power of sin. Life in the Spirit. And by the way, if you want to know what's happening with Israel and the Gentiles, God says, let me explain the past and the present and, and especially the future. And then he says, look, let's get practical. Hey, church, this is how a transformed people lives life together. Covers the whole gamut. Wow. May the Lord bless us as we continue to process this amazing book, both individually and as a church family. Let these truths sink deeply into your heart and into your mind. And may we be a church that strives to live out its principles. Amen? Thank you for your grace this morning. I appreciate it. Let's pray.